0: Hallelujah. This morning, what a great honor and privilege it is for us to join in opening the Scriptures together. In a moment, I'll have you stand for the reading of God's Word. In preparation for the proclamation of the Word of God today, would you turn with me to Genesis 28? Genesis 28 is our primary text today, verses 10 through 15 particularly, but we'll read verses 10 through 22, the second portion of the chapter. Here we pick up on our series, Following the Life of Jacob. We have been following the line of the patriarchs. Who are the patriarchs? They're the fathers of the faith. We have that particular calling of Abraham recorded and many chapters given to his story. We have Abraham dying and the legacy of God's promises passing on to the next generation. That would be his son Isaac, the miraculous son in his old age. And then we have Isaac and his waning years recorded in Genesis 27 and 28. And now once again, that promise, that lineage, that inheritance of the gospel, you could say, is being passed on to yet another generation, that would be Jacob. Is Jacob a likely heir? No, he's not. He's the last to be considered from the preferences of his father. His father preferred Esau, though his mother preferred Jacob. And as you can see, no one is really a hero in this story, save God himself, because the household of Isaac at this time is fraught with all kinds of strife, hostility, and sin, and selfishness, deceit, and even murderous hearts. How can God take such a dysfunctional situation and use it for His glory, preserve the seed of the Messiah, proclaim the gospel along the way, and assure that the promises will continue another generation? Well, I don't know. I couldn't answer that question unless it was recorded for me and recorded for us in the Holy Scriptures. With that perspective... I hope our eyes are open to realize the miracles that we witness in the text today. In light of this, the title of this morning's message is God's House. This is a house, a legacy, a family, a line, a tradition, if you will, a a seed of uh, the Messiah preserved through the generations that God is building. A secondary title could be a gate of heaven, gate of heaven. Those are two terms that Jacob chose to label, to name the place where God visits him In Genesis 28. The aim of this morning's message is to shed light on the significance of Jacob's dream given its full scriptural context. That is, to consider the meaning, the interpretation, if you will, of Jacob's very famous dream in light of its full context. Has anyone heard of Jacob's Ladder? You can nod if you've heard of Jacob's Ladder. That's the text that we're talking about today. So, with that introduction, and your Bibles open if you had them, Would you stand as you're able for the reading of God's word? Out of reverence, we stand to acknowledge his immortal truth. In Genesis 28, listen as the word of God is proclaimed, verses 10 through 22. Here is the word of God. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Jacob, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring." Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Verse 16, then Jacob awoke, from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a tenth to you. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I'd like to paint a little picture for you. So as you recall, Jacob goes on to have 12-ish sons. God fulfills his promise by making him the father of a number of sons before the greater portion of the promise continues even being uh, fulfilled this, yet this day, spiritually speaking, and those who uh, align themselves through the gospel with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But you remember also troubles continued to follow him, including a famine in the land. There's one also very famous individual, a son of Jacob named Joseph. Do you remember he was sold into slavery? He goes to Egypt. He becomes, through a long series of events, favored of Pharaoh himself. After interpreting dreams, he's appointed to be eventually second in command of the kingdom. He's responsible through his wisdom and following the word of God to prepare the storehouses of Egypt to feed the known world. The Near East is surviving famine because of all of the food that Joseph has stored for seven years. And I want you to imagine something. Adults, young people, either one of you can put yourself in this situation. Imagine yourself as an Egyptian. I like to do this. I like to put myself in the story sometimes to get a little different perspective. So the reality of the events occur a little bit more to me. So I imagine myself as a servant of Joseph. So you're a servant in the courts, of Pharaoh's second-in-command, Joseph, okay? And you hear something. You imagine so yourself, imagine yourself in this position. Joseph is reigning in the land. You have a limited, as an Egyptian, you have a limited yet growing appreciation for the God of the Hebrews because you have this relationship now with your master, Joseph, okay? You recognize that he is called and blessed and he has ascended to second-in-command of your nation. You hear along the way that Joseph's family will be relocating to your country, due to the hardships, famine. And that, uh, and the patriarch, Jacob, Joseph's father, the one he's told you so much about, is traveling to your land. By some circumstance, you are provided the opportunity to meet him. And he's old now, but in his waning years, you inquire of his experience. You ask Jacob some questions about Yahweh, the God that has granted such favor to your master Joseph, the miraculous God of this man who now serves second in command. Perhaps as you listen, you hear Jacob recount to you a testimony of the one true God. Where would Jacob begin? Well, undoubtedly, if he didn't begin there, I guarantee he would tell you of the incident we just read of in the scriptures today. That is, if you ask Jacob, what was a defining moment in your life where you met the one true God? and it was a life-changing event, a life-changing encounter, where your heart was confronted by the truth of the Almighty, He would tell you about this dream. You would ask Jacob to recount to you his testimony of Yahweh, God Almighty, El Shaddai, the one true God, He would undoubtedly tell you of a dream as well. Now your master, Joseph, has told you about dreams that he had when he was young. God had told him knowing the future that he would bow that he would be in command of a kingdom that one day his own family members would bow to him and you've seen that come true and now you hear in Jacob's testimony in our little imaginary scenario of another dream that Jacob had on another journey when he was a much younger man and you listen right you listen with eyes wide and you pay close attention rapt attention to the vision and remember this phrase of Heaven's stairway touching ground. Your eyes are wide. You can't believe what you're hearing. You're talking to a man who witnessed in a dream heaven's stairway touching ground. It touched ground at the house of the Lord at Bethel. Now, who did this happen to? This happened to a scheming younger brother, Jacob. But in this moment, When he witnessed heaven's stairway touching ground, he was transformed into a lifetime worshiper of Yahweh, the Lord, the one true God, the God of his father, Abraham, grandfather, the God of his father, Isaac, his God now, Yahweh. And this happened in one glorious and terrifying night. One glorious and terrifying night when heaven's stairway touched the ground at the house of God. At Bethel. This morning I've split, well, I've decided to split considering this passage, a second portion of this text into two sermons because knowing myself I'm, I would go way too long or squeeze way too much in and covering it in one pass. Nevertheless here's a heading for you and hopefully two messages will accompany Jacob's dream interpreted in light of the following. So let's consider Jacob's dream interpreted in light of the following. First of all, the occasion. Secondly, the encounter. And those will be our focus for this morning's message. And then in a few weeks, we'll pick back up on this series and we'll consider two more, Lord willing. Jacob's dream interpreted in light of not just occasion and encounter, but also his response, and then context and fulfillment. So if we consider these headings or these main points, occasion, you know, the circumstances surrounding the event, the encounter would actually happen to Jacob in this moment, the response, how Jacob's, you know, uh, answers the Lord, how he um, responds in this situation, then finally, the, or, and then two other things, the context, the greater context of Scripture and the fulfillment of these events in the future, you start to get a picture of the significance of this dream and its interpretation. This is one of those central portions of Scripture That when you begin to put the dots together, it connects the rest. Ironically, it's about a ladder or a stairway. And that stairway, if you will, connects not just heaven and earth in the dream, but also the dots of Scripture in a profound way. And so our goal in preaching is to reveal some of those in the course of this message. That is to shed light on the significance of Jacob's dream given its full scriptural context. First of all, occasion. What can we learn about or what can we realize about Jacob's dream, given the circumstances that surround it, the occasion, if you will. Well, just to remind you, Jacob is no hero. Excuse me, he's no saint. In fact, the record of his sinfulness, his scheming, his deceit, is recorded at length in the prior chapter. Do you remember? Genesis 27. So he went into his father, this is speaking of Jacob in verse 18, and said, "'My father,' and he, Isaac, said, "'Here I am. "'Who are you, my son?' Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He, Jacob, answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. It's just a little snapshot into scheming, conniving, deceitful heart of Jacob. He's the main character in our story. Well, what's the problem? Well, in Genesis 27, we see he's not a worthy candidate to bear the promises or bear the legacy of God and his covenant line that would one day yield the Messiah. After all, he has lied to his father. He's pretended to be his brother. He's stolen the blessing and he's appealed to Yahweh's name in vain. He has taken God's name in vain. Oh, uh, how did you find that game so quickly? Isaac asks of his son. He said, oh... Because the Lord your God granted me success. He's using the name of God, Yahweh, the one who is sovereign over the stairway and is in charge of the connection between the sinner and the holy, and the only one who can bridge the gap between the finite and the infinite, the only one who is later revealed as El Shaddai, Almighty, the maker, creator of heaven and earth, the one who is sovereign over his promises, who alone has salvation in the palm of his hand and who grants it according to whom he wills. This is the high, awesome, holy name and identity of the one true God. And Jacob is taking that name lightly. He's using Yahweh as leverage to his own advantage in this scheme of deceiving his father, of stealing from his brother, of conspiring with his mother. And by taking God's name in vain, just four or five sins off the top right there. This is the occasion. These are events, the events that surround the situation. So now, imagine if you're Esau kids and your brothers come in, pretended to be you, stolen the blessing, one of the most amazing or one of the most important things you've looked forward to your whole life. Don't you think you'd be a little bit angry? Well, Esau was angry. It says in verse 41, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. And so Rebecca heard about this and she decided to come up with another scheme. She told Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of these women like these, one of the women like these of the land, what good will my life be to me? So not telling the whole truth, once again deceitfully, Rebecca convinces Jacob, I'm sorry, Isaac, to send Jacob away. The real reason is, Is because Esau wants to kill him. The stated reason is, I don't like these women of the land. Send him away to where you found a wife, where you found me. The Lord uses these circumstances and indeed sends Jacob away. But now what is he? He's a lying, thieving, scheming, fugitive who has deceived his mother, who has been complicit with the deception of his mother to trick his father once again. And now he's sent on his way. He's taken the Lord's name in vain. He's been a tent dweller his whole life. He hasn't taken seriously the covenant. His father hasn't found a bride for him yet. His father hasn't taken seriously the covenant. We've talked about the hostility and the quarreling and the strife and corruption that has plagued this household. So here you have someone who is a fugitive in exile leaving a dysfunctional home, running for his life, and out in the wilderness with not so much the skills to hunt and fend for his food like Esau had, you know, sleeping on a rock or under a rock, we're not sure of the translation, and boom, those are the circumstances which lay the background for God to visit him. Now, could you, could you imagine yourself feeling more vulnerable than Jacob in this situation? If God were to visit you under these circumstances, you know in your heart of hearts, you're guilty of his judgments. And so if God were to show up when you've just committed all of this dysfunctional sin, you realize that you have no right to stand before the presence of Almighty God, having just taken His name in vain and broken like five or six of His commandments. Nevertheless, Jacob is visited by a holy God. And in similar and, uh, and not only are you vulnerable spiritually to a visitation from Almighty God, but you are also vulnerable physically. You're sleeping all by yourself without so much as a tent, under the stars. And in this situation, uh, Isaac finds himself. His scheming strife and sin is behind him. Now living with the consequences of his actions, both spiritually and physically, he is on a desperate flight. And it is here that he meets God in a dream. Now, why is Jacob in this situation? Our worship text last week was this, uh, Psalm 127. And the first verse says something like, if uh, they, you labor it in vain uh, in, and so, excuse me, unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain that build it. And we've seen the example of building a house, securing your future, you know, taking matters into your own hands, living by your own devices. Every member in this family has done that up till now. But We've also seen the consequences. It has been in vain. Unless the Lord builds a house, They labor in vain that build it. Our worship text for this week, Mark read for us, is, O Lord, who can dwell in your presence or your holy hill? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and hasn't lifted up his soul to an idol. So again, we have this situation where Jacob is about to encounter the house of the Lord, having labored in vain to build his own house, yielding the consequences of his sin, but something amazing is about to happen. Where is this taking place? Well, this again lends to the context. Verse 10 of Genesis 28, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place. You see, the author, Moses in this case, kind of takes the perspective of Jacob, who is just sinfully naive about even where he's at. Jacob does not realize that this place is significant. It's just a place to stay for the night, a certain place. And why is he laying down? Well, likely he's exhausted, succumbing to sleep, overtaking him, in spite of the danger that it represents, the nightfall, the open air, and himself not knowing where he is or what he's doing, he takes one of the stones of that place, again, this place he doesn't have any idea where it is, puts it under his head and lays down to sleep. Turn back with me to Genesis 12 for a moment, if you would, and let us get some background on this place. This place has already been introduced to us through the legacy, through the story of Jacob's grandfather. Which kids, who would that be? Who is Jacob's grandfather? A little trivia for you. Anybody know? You can shout it out if you remember. Jacob's grandfather. Abraham, good call back there. That is correct. In Genesis 12, Abraham is going the opposite direction. He's leaving Padan Aram, and Haran and he's traveling to the land of Canaan. And in the mid, about midway or something like that, he encounters a place called Bethel. Now picture that map in your mind and imagine a, someone traveling the same path virtually but the opposite direction and then meeting in the middle. Now separated by years, so to speak, Jacob and Abraham are meeting at this same place, that is, the legacy. But what Jacob doesn't realize is this. In Genesis 12, verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram, and this is before his name changed, and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel in the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now, later in the next verse, we have another reference to Bethel, verse or next chapter, 13.2. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, gold. He journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he made an altar at the first. And there Abraham called on the name of the Lord. What is the purpose of an altar? Well, it's a memorial. It's a milestone. Physically, it's standing right there. To represent to the next generation, to remind the person who experienced the event, and all who had eyes to see and ears to hear, that this is the house of the Lord. That's what Bethel means. Bethel means the house of God. Jacob has stumbled into the house of God, and for him, it's just a place. He doesn't realize he's there at Bethel, the place where his grandfather met God, and God revealed himself to him. And for the generations to hear and see, Abram, in his obedience to the Lord, recognizing the significance of this event, built an altar. But Jacob is oblivious. Young people, listen to me. Don't live like this spiritually. You see, I'm covering my eyes with my hand right now. One of the temptations, if you're growing up in a Christian home, is to hear the gospel over and over and over again until it almost becomes old news to you. And as you grow up, you think to yourself, I'm going to make my own way, find my own identity. I need to define myself differently from my parents, my experience, my church, and my upbringing. If you do this kind of thing, you'll find yourself in Jacob's shoes, stumbling blind through life, with your hand over your eyes, living in Bethel, not even knowing it, and a life of dysfunction and the consequences of your sin and being an utter catastrophe and failure, vulnerable to life. God had mercy on Jacob, And I pray he has mercy on you too, but don't miss this application. Treasure the testimony of righteousness, the testimony of the gospel, if you're in a believing home that your parents are giving you. It is the most valuable thing you have. Do not forget the altar, so to speak, that your parents are giving you in their instruction, their education, and taking you to church every Sunday. That is an altar. Remember it. So you don't end up like Jacob one day, vulnerable to the enemy and the devices and and everything else, and then wake up and find yourself a victim of life because you left the most secure place of all, the acknowledgement of the house of the Lord and the safety of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the assurance of eternal life in Jesus Christ's blood alone, an application for you. So here we have the location. And we have the circumstance, sort of the location of where Jacob's at in his heart and the location where he's at physically. He's not realizing that this is an altar location where God had revealed Himself before. He's not realizing that he in his sinful stupidity has been blind to this fact this whole time. Time for Jacob to have a wake-up call, a wake-up call. And literally, that's what happens. Notice in our text, back in Genesis 28, after the Lord gives him this dream, it says in verse 17... Or 16, then Jacob awoke from his sleep. Now imagine, you guys have had nightmares, haven't you? What are the kind of nightmares that jerk you awake? For me, it's that falling dream, you know, that everybody has, it seems like. You can relate to that. Or a tragedy is happening in your dream, like right before the guillotine falls, you're in the French Revolution, you're a victim of the Jacobins or something, you imagine yourself in that situation, and right before the knife falls, you like jump awake or you're sleeping on the top bunk and you have a dream that you're flying, and maybe you actually do jump off the top bunk, and then you snap awake as you hit the floor. This is the kind of thing that Jacob felt in this moment. But it was a spiritual awakening, not just a physical one. He woke up from this dream, but he woke up a different man. Because he realized that he was dwelling in Bethel, the house of God, ruled by the Almighty, Yahweh, the Lord, the sovereign, the creator, the sustainer, the architect of not just this whole world, all the creation and everything that exists, but also salvation, the means whereby man can dwell in the same place with God and have his hands cleansed and his heart purified so he's not justly killed in an instant because his very presence taints the environment that needs to be absolutely pure for a holy God to remain perfect, just, and true, and righteous. This is a wake-up call. This happens while Jacob is sleeping. Again, this is kind of significant, I would submit. Under his head or at his head is a stone. Then translations differ. The original language is a little ambiguous. But it gives us this picture of crude accommodations. And it kind of is a mark of Jacob's life unto this point. He's lived his life by his own wits and his own devices, just like Esau has. And so he wants to protect himself. And the best he can do for a shelter is to gather some stones from that area and maybe like huddle behind one. And he's thinking, perhaps in his mind, with some jackals and some lions are in the distance. At least 20% of their vision will be obscured if they come from that direction, so I'm going to hide behind this stone. I wonder how long you've tried to stay awake. I remember in my younger years, I could pull off what we call an (laughs) all-nighter, and there's no way I can do it now. I can't even go all the way through most movies without falling asleep. If you're in that 40-plus category, I'm sure you can relate. This to illustrate... That because of the way that we're constructed just in the limitations of our physical being, sooner or later, you must fall asleep. And sleep is interesting. We don't think about it much because it happens to us virtually every day. But if you think about it, there there are a few times in life when you're more vulnerable than when you're asleep. When you're sleeping, that's when some of the best pranks can be pulled on you, right? That's when you're totally oblivious to your surroundings. That's when you are separated from your ordinary faculties and your devices. And you could perhaps put it this way. God does some of his best work when we are most vulnerable. When we we come to the end of ourselves and our devices and realize that we are human beings who fall immeasurably short of measuring up to his righteousness and have neither the tools, the ability, the know-how, the experience, to reconnect ourselves to God when we finally give up and fall asleep as it were and surrender to the Lord. At that moment, the gospel can come and wake you up from the slumber of your sin. And like Jacob, you can meet face to face the God whose grace has sustained you all along and realize now is the day of salvation. Acknowledge his power, lordship, and glory. Turn from your life of sin like Jacob does at this time Leave your own devices and realize that you are vulnerable, dependent, contingent. And if you don't trust the Lord, the Sovereign Almighty, you are in big trouble. Thanks. <clears throat> Kids, question for you. <clears throat> Can you remember some, somebody else in the Scriptures who fell asleep and God did something pretty amazing while he was sleeping? Kids, you remember another person? God did something awesome while he was sleeping? Five, four, three, two, one, Marr, buzzer goes off. Adam. Do so you guys remember what happened? Adam falls asleep, and in the night, God removes one of his ribs. And when he wakes up, something amazing has happened. There's a beautiful lady right next to him. Awesome. Again, a picture of dependence upon the Lord. God does his miraculous work when we realize we cannot work to benefit ourselves. That picture is repeated here with respect to salvation in Jacob's experience. Succumbing to sleep, (coughs) perhaps the most vulnerable activity of our existence, reminds us of our human frailty and dependence. And in this moment, God visits Jacob. (coughs) So where are we? We're in Bethel. (coughs) A place of God's prior visitation where an altar had been set up by Abram. And who is our character? It's Jacob. And what's the state of his heart? Absolute, sinful, or just the sinful consequences have washed over him like a wave. And what state does God find him in? <clears throat> One where he's finally vulnerable and given up, succumbed to sleep, and then God intervenes. <coughs> Apologize for them, throat, but we'll keep rolling. Number two, encounter. Jacob's dream interpreted in light of first occasion and second encounter. And here's the encounter. This would be the dream, verse 12. And he, Jacob, dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Verse 15... Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. <clears throat> I don't know if you noticed, but three times the reader is called to pay attention. That's a synonym for behold. Notice verse 12. He dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder. Pay attention. Verse 13, and behold, the Lord stood above it. Again, pay attention. This is Moses saying through the text to you and I as we read, wake up, look, draw your attention. Third, and a third time, verse 15, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And here the pay attention is addressed in his words, God's words to Isaac, I'm sorry, to Jacob. <clears throat> suffice it to say, for the reader, you and I, and for the subject, the main character in our story, God is saying, look at this. Open your eyes, pay attention, I will show you something. Do you guys remember in the context of Genesis, this lift up your eyes motif, or we kind of see this framework, this concept from time to time? Lot lifted up his eyes to the cities of the plains, that is, he set his affections, his desires his attention, his goals, and his ambitions on worldly prosperity in his sin. At the same time, Abraham was called to lift up his eyes and to look to the area that God would promise him in the future, at that time, wilderness of Canaan, which would be his. This idea of lift up your eyes is similar to behold. It means to pay attention, to look, to carefully assess what you have set your desires upon the things that are most important to you, and realize what should be most important. It's priority. It's a direction of the spiritual gaze, if you will. And this section, this passage, where Yahweh introduces himself, the Lord Almighty, to Jacob, is marked three times by this language, urging the reader to lift up his eyes to behold and urging Jacob to do the same. Behold reader, you and I, and behold Jacob, the God of glory is revealing Himself. And what is the first thing we are called to behold? A ladder. Or it can be translated, your Bible might read stairway. Either one is acceptable. And this is the only time, by the way, this word appears in all of Scripture. Verse 12, and he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder or a stairway set up on the earth, heaven's stairway touching ground. Behold, there is a connection. A way, a traveling, a highway, bridging the chasm that we sang about before between heaven and earth. Pay attention. Realize this significance. This is something. Now, this is a story that's familiar to us. I imagine if you were in Sunday school when you were growing up, you might have a flannel board and a picture of a ladder, you know, from heaven to earth, or an illustration in a picture book, an illustrated Bible that you grew up with. It's easy sometimes for us to dismiss these stories by a kind of shorthand memory like that. Oh, I remember that story, Jacob's Ladder. That must have been cool to have that dream. But realize, behold, a ladder. It's much more significant than just an interesting picture that holds your attention in a dream. What's pictured here is a, has profound, even philosophical, implications, That is to say, this dream, this revelation by God provides the answer to otherwise age-old and unanswerable questions that men have asked in the fallen human experience from time immemorial. From the time of the garden till now, philosophers and people who have academic multiple PhDs ask very important questions but remain blind to the answers until they behold the latter, so to speak, of Jacob's dream. And what are these questions? How is it possible to bridge the gap between the infinite and the finite? How is it possible to understand a God that is transcendent and over and above everything existing in a realm outside of time as a finite creature? You know, modern philosophy has answered that it is impossible. And modern science, quote unquote, has stepped in to recast our understanding of reality to accommodate this presupposition. There is no eternity, our modern philosopher, Darwinian scientist says. That is to say, creation, wrong term, according to them, whatever we see in the material existence came about by its own devices. In other words, the modern man says there's no reason to bridge the finite and the infinite. Infinite. Where did we come from? Who's responsible? You know, all the evidence of design is around us because they just cover their eyes like Jacob. And they stumble about in the house of God, creation itself, blind to the fact that they're living in His world. And they lie to themselves and they say that the infinite, the sovereign, the creator, the sustainer does not exist. This, of course, is what fools say. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Nevertheless, the question remains, if there is a God, how can he be known? Another way to phrase the question, how can a holy God and a decrepit sinner be reconciled? How is that possible? Jacob knows sin. He knows what it means to be unworthy of the presence of God. Nevertheless, here in the house of God, he is visited in his dream by a stairway heaven's stairway touching ground. And the answer to how Jacob's sin can be dealt with and he can be reconciled to holy God somehow hinges upon understanding this image. What is this connection between the finite and the infinite, the material and the eternal, between the creator and the created, between the holy and unattainable and the sinner, the transcendent, that which is over and above, the imminent, that which we experience in our objective day-to-day sensory reality. Well, <clears throat> in Jacob's life, we see other t- times where this connection between God and man is apparent. And let me just interject before I give you a couple biblical examples by saying this, that the term I've mentioned before in theology is condescension. That is to say that God in his perfection holiness His sovereignty, His transcendence, His holiness, His his aboveness, if you will, has accommodated Himself. He has introduced Himself in ways that He can be known by us. And the major one of these is through His holy word. So as we read the scriptures, we are encountering Almighty God through His written revelation. You might ask this question. If there is a ladder, so to speak, if there is a connection and a bridge between a holy God and a sinner, where else in the Scriptures do we see evidence of this heaven's stairway? Well, turn with me to Genesis 35. I'll give you a couple examples in the Old Testament. And this will help you in your Bible study of the Old Testament when you begin to recognize this kind of language. It will help you to tie the Scriptures together and realize this concept more fully, I trust. God is speaking once again to Jacob, same place, similar circumstances in Genesis 35, 12. And he says, the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Notice 13. Then God went up from him in that place where he had spoken with him. Did you notice that language? God went up from Jacob as he spoke to him in Genesis 35. What does that presume? but that God first came down. You see this ladder that Jacob saw in this dreamscape, this connection between God and man? He witnessed that ladder again. God came and spoke to him again, and then God went up. This is condescension. This is ascension. Abraham experienced the same thing. You can study this on your own time later, but in Genesis 17, 22, The covenant will be given, will be signified. God will institute the covenant sign. And God comes down, presumably, and he speaks to Abraham. This is down up language, condescension, ascension. And at the end, in Genesis 17, 22, speaking to Abraham, it says, Yahweh, God went up from Abraham in ascension. So you see, Abraham had experienced this ladder, this connection, which is helpful for us to understand in terms of direction. God comes down and speaks. And then he goes up, he ascends. Is there a way for us to ascend that ladder? Elijah answers that question in the Old Testament. What happens in 1 Kings, find these references for you, can study them as well, 19, five through eight. Well, the prophets of Baal have been defeated. God through his servant Elijah is victorious. Yet he's weary, he runs into the wilderness. And he succumbs to sleep or weariness, if you will, can relate to Jacob in a sense, and he's despairing. But what happens? The latter, the connection between God and Elijah is established. So God sends angels down, if you will, to minister to Elijah. What happens at the end of Elijah's tenure? Does Elijah die, kids? Is Elijah buried anywhere? Do you think an archaeologist will ever find Elijah's body, kids, you know? What happened to Elijah? Does anyone know? How did he die or did he die? Say again. God took him to heaven, that's correct. You can read of this in 2 Kings 2.11. You might remember that account as well. Fiery chariots come down from glory. They scoop up Elijah and Elisha, the prophet, who will follow in his ministry after, witnesses his servant, his master's mentor, ascending in a fiery chariot to glory. That is to say, Elijah is climbing, if you will, by means of this heavenly vehicle up the ladder to Yahweh. Condescension and ascension. As you see these patterns in Scripture and as you read throughout the Old Testament, you will see this picture of God stooping low to visit His servant and then ascending. And think forward with me, you don't have to do too much connecting of the dots to realize that this very same picture is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Does Jesus Christ stoop low in his humanity? He stoops so low that he becomes a human baby in the womb of a virgin. What is this? This is God himself condescending, coming down the ladder. And what does he come down to do? To take on the burden of our sin, to preach the message of the kingdom, and to establish once and for all in his work on Calvary, the connection between the finite, the infinite, and the finite between the holy and the sinner. And how does he connect that? He connects that distance through the cross. And after the cross, we'll cover this more in a few weeks, what does he do in Acts chapter 1? He ascends. He ascends. Will we go with him? If you know Jesus Christ, you better believe it. You will go with him. There is a resurrection for a purpose. There is a reason why our bodies will be resurrected because Jacob's ladder is a reality spiritually if you know Jesus Christ. You have eternal life. There's a second resurrection. And when your body that lies in the grave awaiting that final day finally breathes as Jesus' body once did, it is caught up into glory. It ascends like Elijah did, like Jesus did. And the God who descended, on this ladder of the gospel, will now bring you up to his presence to live with him and dwell with him forever. This is what's going on in our text. This is the significance of Jacob's ladder given the wider context. So when the scriptures call, when Moses calls our attention to behold the ladder, in effect, he's saying, behold Jesus Christ. More proof of that in future messages. Secondly, behold Under this encounter, Yahweh speaking. What does God himself say? The Lord stood above it, and this could be interpreted two ways. Some commentators think we picture God, Yahweh himself, at the top of the ladder in heaven. Some think he is condescending. We picture at the top of Jacob standing over him as he sleeps. It could be either, and perhaps it's both. But in this picture, nevertheless, it's God in his sovereignty is over Jacob, standing above him. That means that he has the authority and the power to act, to intervene, to hold Jacob accountable for his sin. And does this freak Jacob out? You better believe it does. He was afraid when he woke up, struck with terror. Remember, this is a glorious and terrifying night. Heaven's stairway touching ground. You better have the assurance that your sins are atoned for. If you greet the Lord on his coming one day, We've mentioned this a number of times. The coming of the Lord means one of two things. It's judgment time or it's salvation time. When you ask for the Lord to come, Maranatha, that cry from early Christians, oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's only a good thing if you stand in right covenant relationship with the Lord. Otherwise, the coming day of the Lord is the most terrifying judgment you can possibly imagine. Today is the day of salvation. If you have not repented of your sins and turned to Jesus Christ, in the preaching of this message today, I trust that there is opportunity to meet the Lord in his house. You cannot afford to live one more moment not knowing if the coming of the Lord will be judgment for you or salvation. Have the assurance of your sins atoned for by bowing before Jesus Christ, the only one who died to reconnect you with the Holy who can wash the payment of your sins away, take it upon himself and give you the assurance that you will ascend with him up that ladder, so to speak, with him in glory one day. I am the Lord, that is Yahweh, which we, is the I am statement that Moses had heard when he was called. Remember the burning bush? Take off your shoes, Moses. You are in a holy place. And Isaac, stupid and blind in his sins, stumbles into the house of God and has not taken off his shoes, so to speak. Nevertheless, the same I am intervenes and said, Jacob, one was a fiery bush in the case of Moses. Here, it's a glorious stairway from heaven, touching ground, and Jacob is quaking in his boots as he realizes his dream. Yahweh, the Lord, the sovereign, the self-sufficient, the covenant keeper, the majestic, the holy, the one who is in charge of everything is speaking. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, and the land on which you lie, I will give to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. What is Yahweh saying? Well, this isn't based on Jacob and his good works. This is based on the promise in his holy word that God in his grace and mercy will satisfy the covenant of old and he will redeem Jacob, change his heart and put him in conformity to his promises of old that were given to his grandfather and his father and Jacob by God's grace alone, not by his own works, his heart will change and he will bow and receive the gospel that he is called, he and his lineage, to bear the seed one day of the Messiah who will actually be the answer, the fulfillment of this ladder between heaven and earth. This is what Yahweh is speaking. Incidentally, you can read of this in Luke 2.14 and with Christmas right around the corner, well, perhaps I shouldn't say that. We Minnesotans like to hang on to summer as long as we possibly can, right? But you know how it is. Time flies and pretty soon we'll be singing some of those Christmas hymns. And among them may be that angels we have heard on high Remember, in Luke 2.14, this isn't the only time where the stairway of heaven touched earth and it was signaled by angels. There will be another time in the future from Jacob's time here, recorded in Luke 2.14, where the heavens will break forth into song as angels testify to heaven's stairway touching ground. And it is no mistake, it's a direct connection that this is signaled by angels. Who are these angels? They're the ministering spirits of God. And in the instance of the shepherds in the field, they announced the news. They were heralding angels. They were sent down the ladder, so to speak, to tell everyone, Unto you is born this day a child. We'll find the babe wrapped in swatting clothes, you know, laying in a manger. Glory to God in the highest. On earth, peace and goodwill toward men. Peace and goodwill? We're fallen. We're sinners. We're deserving of hell. How can we have peace and goodwill with men? Heaven's stairway is touching ground touching ground with, under the feet of this little baby in Bethlehem. And these angels sent to announce this, fill the skies and, and proclaim to the shepherds in heaven's loudspeaker that this moment prophesied in Jacob's time has come. This is what Yahweh is prophesying right now to Jacob. This is what's fulfilled in Luke chapter 2. This is the signaled by angels' reality that holds out hope. And God breaks all the boundaries of ethnic Israel and even the limitations of the land as He expands on the promise by saying, Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south. Has this happened? You and I are proof that it has. The boundaries of God's purposes have been breached by the gospel and have spread over the whole globe. That's why on literally the entire other side of the earth, in some obscure corner in Cross Lake, Minnesota, people gather in the name of Jesus to worship the one who is the stairway that touched ground in the incarnation and holds out hope that we, if we believe and trust in him, to cleanse us from our sins, will catch us up one day to join Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all of the redeemed. So when we read this right here, we can experience we are experiencing that prophetic reality right now in this gathering today. Finally this morning and in closing this message, there's no good place to stop. In verse 15 we have this. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Would this Promise come true because Jacob is awesome? No. Jacob is a lying, scheming guy who is being encountered by this sovereign revelation of a holy God, and he's going to be changed. But what's the real key to the change? It's the presence of the Almighty. Commentators will sometimes call this the Emmanuel principle. Kids, what does Emmanuel mean? Does anyone know what Emmanuel means? Shout it out if you know. What does Emmanuel mean? Oh yeah, good job. Turn with me, last reference. Manual means God with us. Turn with me, last reference to Matthew chapter 1. First chapter, first book, New Testament. And that's significant because we're turning over a leaf that pertains to the prophecies here we've been reading about. Now this is another dream. And Joseph, Mary's would-be husband, has this dream. And he receives from an angel, right? A minister coming down to speak to Joseph. He will save, speaking of Jesus. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what God has spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Which kids, what does that mean? Shout it out. Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name God with us. Very good. God with us. And right here, Matthew says as much, which means God with us. That's Matthew 1.23. And when Joseph woke from sleep, similar circumstance to Jacob, isn't it? He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Took his wife, knew her not, till she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So this Emmanuel principle, which means God with us, goes back to the prophet Isaiah. That's a direct citation. But it goes back further still. It goes back to promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. And what were those promises? Well, in our text, Genesis 28:15, Behold, I am with you, the Emmanuel principle, God with you. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. This is the essence of the house of God, God with us. So if you live in a house, you live with the members of the house. Very simple, right? A household is a term we use to describe the cohabitants of a single dwelling. Do you live in the house of God? Do you live in the house of God? You can stumble into the house of God like Jacob, but if you don't repent and turn to him, if your eyes aren't opened, to that ladder that connects a holy God to the unrighteous, God will kick you out. Let's say, you though know, oh, that sounds harsh, this is why I don't like Christianity. You know, the unbeliever says, it's so judgmental. Well, you have a house, don't you? You know, hypothetical unbeliever. And do you let just anybody come in at night? Do you leave your doors unlocked? Is anyone welcome in your home? Would you let a convicted felon, a pedophile, sleep on your living room floor? Would you let, you know, Charles Manson babysit your two-year-old while you're gone? Of course you wouldn't because your house is a sacred place and you guard the perimeter if you love your family with clear boundaries. Therefore, you lock the door, you have rules, you have expectations, you discipline your children, etc., etc. Now, if you, as owner of your home and as leader of your family, men, if you hear this, you can understand, reserve the right to uh, defend the limitations of your abode, does God not deserve the right to defend the limitations of his? Does God not have the right to guard the perimeter of his household from the scheming, wiles, sinful, corrupt, decrepit, untrustworthy sinner? You bet he does. The only way that Jacob can remain in the house of God is if his heart is changed. If he repents and believes and he beholds the Lord and he wakes up and he has a change of heart. And that's why we imagine the beginning of this sermon. This was such a significant life-changing event for him that he would likely tell of it the rest of his life. We know this because we'll read later that he in fact builds an altar in that exact location. He actually goes back to that location and builds an altar so future generations don't forget it. The Emmanuel principle is the essence of the house of God. Unless God is with you, unless Jesus is your savior, unless Jesus is your Lord, unless you are born again, you have no business in God's house. Just like a convicted felon has no business just knocking on, you know, breaking into your house and sleeping in your living room in the middle of the night. No, you must repent and turn to him to be welcomed into the house of God. And how is this possible? Through Jesus Christ, who is Emmanuel, God with us. Pictures all through the Old Testament speak of this. The psalm that we uh, referenced today, we read today, speaks of this. But Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment. I beg you, keep these things in mind as we close. Uh, this sermon today. But do not close your heart, even as we signal the end of this message. But open your, your heart, I beg you, to the truth that Jacob's story proclaims, so that you are found in the good graces of Yahweh when you bow before Jesus Christ, your Lord, and find through Him, your Emmanuel, uh, that favor and reconciliation with an almighty and holy God. Let's close in prayer. O oh Lord, we thank you for the message of the gospel that rings true from the earliest pages of Scripture all the way to their glorious fulfillment in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would write upon the table of our hearts the significance of what is revealed in Jacob's experience. And I pray that there would be no one in the hearing of this message who can't relate, but if there are any who lie outside of the welcoming presence of a holy and awesome God, that they would repent of their sin and find hope in Jesus Christ to connect them once again. To the holiness, or to a relationship with God—a relationship that was lost in Adam and regained in the Second Adam, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that You would bless and, and uh, that You would bless and multiply the fruit of the seed of the Word as it has been sown today, that it might pro- produce fruit and hearts that are cultivated by the Holy Spirit, thirty, sixty, and 100-fold. For believers, I pray it would be confidence and sanctification to proclaim the gospel to be conformed to your image. For unbelievers, I pray that it would be to repent, to turn from sins, and to join us in the welcoming presence of Jesus Christ who died in our place as a sufficient payment for the hell that we deserved. Thank you for these moments we've shared together. and May we go remembering these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.